and welcome back to the increasingly erratic Corey Doctorow podcast. I did warn you the last time that I was going to be on the road a lot, and indeed, I got back from Australia yesterday morning, and I am profoundly jet-lagged in a way that uh, exceeds the five time zones that I've nominally crossed. It's actually uh, 19 time zones, because obviously when you're going forward more than 12 hours, you're going back less than 12 hours. I don't know if that makes sense. I'm pretty jet-lagged. As the Fiegels would say in a Terry Pratchett novel, you can well what I mean. Anyway, I am back for one day to change suitcases and record a podcast, and then tomorrow morning, flying up to Seattle for one day to present at the American Booksellers Association Winter Institute for my novel, Chopin Capitalism. That is the beginning of the next round of travel. I will be in Brussels on March the 2nd for the Antitrust Regulation and Political Economy Conference, and then a couple of days later, I'll be in Graz, Austria for the Elevate Festival. I get back and I pretty much turn around and head straight to Austin for South by Southwest, where I'm kicking off their reading series, along with my co-author, Rebecca Giblin, who will be back on this landmass for our book, Chopin Capitalism. From there, I head to Madrid for the Matadeo Festival, where I will present Radicalized or Radicalizado. And then I'll be in Barcelona talking about Chopin Capitalism. And then I come back, have a couple of days on the ground before I hit the road for the Red Team Blues Tour, which kicks off at the end of April. And I'll be all over the U.S. and Canada and the United Kingdom. And so I hope to see you at one or more of those places. So besides Red Team Blues, there's lots of news about other books. Um, The Bezel, which is the second book in the Martin Hench series, the prequel to Red Team Blues. They go back in time chronologically. That has been accepted for publication. And I've just gotten the uh, rewrites on Lost Cause, which is the novel that comes out next November. It's my sort of post-Green New Deal, ecotopian novel about truth and reconciliation with white nationalist militias. It's come back from the editor with uh, an editorial note. I have completed his edits, and now I'm doing one more pass on it before sending it back, and it should be done And it should be done probably today, depending on how the jet lag treats me. I am nearly done. I continue to be nearly done with Picks and Shovels, the last of the three Martin Hench novels I'm contracted for chronologically. The first, once again, they go in reverse chronological order. I am struggling a little with this ending, and it's always hard to tell in the moment, as diligent listeners will know, whether you're struggling because life is kind of hard or whether you're struggling because there's something wrong with the material. And I won't know for several months. And, you know, by uh, all objective standards, life is a little bit difficult. Nothing bad happening, but just a lot happening, which can be very stressful and not conducive to being in a good mood about the stuff you're producing. It's easy to feel like you're screwing things up when you're kind of racing from one thing to another. So wish me luck. Should be done very soon, week or two, I would hope. And then I can put it in a drawer for a while and have a long think about it and come back to it. Even though I'm having a little trouble with this last novel, my web writing is going very well. As I record this today on the 19th of February, it is the third anniversary of Pluralistic, my post-Boing-Boing solo project, and I just wrote a long essay about it, as well as my weekly Medium column, which I'm very happy with, which is called Twiddler, T-W-I-D-D-L-E-R, as in twiddling the knobs. Both of those pieces today I'm very happy with. I'm also very happy with a recent blog post I wrote on Pluralistic, the thing that I'm going to read to you today. 
It's an essay about enshittification. This is an idea that if you heard last week's podcast, you will have encountered, or not last week's podcast, rather the last installment of this podcast. This one takes as a jumping off point what is happening with TikTok and its own management, and an article from Forbes that kind of digs into some of the hidden stuff going on behind the scenes there. It's called, simply enough, TikTok's enshittification. And you may have already read it on Pluralistic, or you might have read it in Wired, which picked it up under the Creative Commons license and republished it. And this is your reminder that everything on Pluralistic is Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, which means that you can republish it, including commercially, without asking me, without getting my permission. If you want edits, or if you feel like licensing it from me and getting some warranties and representations and indemnity, you can do that, and I'll charge you probably a dollar a word for it. But if you just want to take that risk and publish it yourself, and do any editing on your own, provided you note the edits and make an annotation and link back to the original and the license as per the license terms, you are more than welcome to do that for this essay or for anything else that appears on Pluralistic. Well, with that benediction out of the way, here is this week's reading from the 21st of January edition of Pluralistic.net, TikToks in Shittification. Here is how platforms die. First, they are good to their users. Then, they abuse their users to make things better for their business customers. Finally, they abuse those business customers to claw back all the value for themselves. Then, they die. I call this in shittification, and it is a seemingly inevitable consequence arising from the combination of the ease of changing how a platform allocates value, combined with the nature of a two-sided market, where a platform sits between buyers and sellers, holding each hostage to the other, raking off an ever-larger share of the value that passes between them. When a platform starts, it needs users, so it makes itself valuable to users. Think of Amazon. For many years, it operated at a loss, using its access to the capital markets to subsidize everything you bought. It sold goods below cost and shipped them below cost. It operated a clean and useful search. If you searched for a product, Amazon tried its damnedest to put it at the top of the search results. This was a hell of a good deal for Amazon's customers. Lots of us piled in and lots of brick-and-mortar retailers withered and died, making it hard to go elsewhere. Amazon sold us ebooks and audiobooks that were permanently locked to its platform with DRM so that every dollar we spent on media was a dollar we'd have to give up if we deleted Amazon and its apps. And Amazon sold us Prime, getting us to prepay for a year's worth of shipping. Prime customers start their shopping on Amazon and 90% of the time, they don't search anywhere else. This tempted in lots of business customers, marketplace sellers who turned Amazon into the everything store it had promised from the beginning. As these sellers piled in, Amazon shifted to subsidizing suppliers. Kindle and Audible creators got generous packages, marketplace sellers reached huge audiences, and Amazon took low commissions from them. This strategy meant that it became progressively harder for shoppers to find things anywhere except Amazon, which meant that they only searched on Amazon, which meant that sellers had to sell on Amazon. That's when Amazon started to harvest the surplus from its business customers and send it to Amazon's shareholders. Today, marketplace sellers are handing 45% or more of the sale price to Amazon in junk fees. 
Uh, I'll note here that uh, a few days after this came out, a new report came out showing that it was now more than 50%, more than half of the money that you spend in the Amazon marketplace goes to Amazon, just FYI. The company's $31 billion advertising program is really a payola scheme that pits sellers against each other, forcing them to bid on the chance to be at the top of your search. Searching Amazon doesn't produce a list of products that most closely match your search. It brings up a list of products whose sellers have paid the most to be at the top of that search. These fees are built into the cost that you pay for the product, and Amazon's most favored nation requirement for sellers means that they can't sell more cheaply elsewhere. So Amazon has driven prices at every retailer. Search Amazon for cat beds, and the entire first screen is ads, including ads for products Amazon cloned from its own sellers, putting them out of business. Third parties have to pay 45% in junk fees to Amazon, but Amazon doesn't charge itself those fees. All told, the first five screens of results for cat bed are 50% ads. This is in shittification. Surpluses are first directed to users. Then, once they're locked in, surpluses go to suppliers. Then, once they're locked in, the surplus is handed to shareholders, and the platform becomes a useless pile of shit. From mobile app stores to Steam, from Facebook to Twitter, this is the enshittification life cycle. This is why, as Kat Valenti wrote in her magisterial pre-Christmas essay, platforms like Prodigy transform themselves overnight, from a place where you went for social connection to a place where you are expected to stop talking to each other and start buying things. This shell game with surpluses is what happened to Facebook. First, Facebook was good to you. It showed you the things you loved and cared about had to say. This created a kind of mutual hostage-taking. Once a critical mass of people you cared about were on Facebook, it became effectively impossible to leave, because you'd have to convince all of them to leave too and agree on where to go. You may love your friends, but half the time you can't agree on what movie to see and where to go for dinner. Forget it. Then, Facebook started to cram your feed full of posts from accounts you didn't follow. At first, it was media companies, whom Facebook preferentially crammed on its users' throats so that they would click on articles and send traffic to newspapers, magazines, and blogs. Then, once those publications were dependent on Facebook for their traffic, it dialed down their traffic. First, it choked off traffic to publications that used Facebook to run excerpts with links to their own sites as a way of driving publications into supplying full-text feeds inside Facebook's walled garden. This made publications truly dependent on Facebook. Their readers no longer visited the publication's websites, they just tuned into them on Facebook. The publications were hostage to those readers, who were hostage to each other. Facebook stopped showing readers the articles the publications ran, tuning the algorithm to suppress posts from publications unless they paid to boost their articles to the readers who had explicitly subscribed to them and asked Facebook to put them in their feeds. Now, Facebook started to cram more ads into the feed, mixing payola from people you wanted to hear from with payola from strangers who wanted to commandeer your eyeballs. It gave those advertisers a great deal, charging a pittance to target their ads based on the dossiers of non-consensually harvested personal data they'd stolen from you. Sellers became dependent on Facebook too, unable to carry on business without access to those targeted pitches. That was Facebook's cue to jack up ad prices, stop worrying so much about ad fraud, and to collude with Google to rig the ad market through an illegal program called Jedi Blue. 
Today, Facebook is terminally inshittified, a terrible place to be, whether you're a user, a media company, or an advertiser. It's a company that deliberately demolished a huge fraction of the publishers it relied on, defrauding them into a pivot to video based on false claims of the popularity of video among Facebook users. Companies threw billions into the pivot, but the viewers never materialized, and media outlets folded in droves. But Facebook has a new pitch. It claims to be called Meta, and it has demanded that we live out the rest of our lives as legless, sexless, heavily surveilled, low-poly cartoon characters. It has promised companies that make apps for this metaverse that it won't rug them, the way it did the publishers on the old Facebook. It remains to be seen whether they'll get any takers. As Mark Zuckerberg once candidly confessed to appear, marveling at all of his fellow Harvard students who sent their personal information to his new website, The Facebook, I don't know why. They trust me. Dumb fucks. Once you understand the inshittification pattern, think of the SEO market or the whole energetic world of online creators who spend endless hours in useless platform Kremlinology, hoping to locate the algorithmic tripwires which, if crossed, doom the creative works they pour their money, time, and energy into. Working for the platform can be like working for a boss who takes money out of every paycheck for all the rules you broke, but won't tell you what those rules are, because if he told you that... Then you'd figure out how to break those rules without him noticing and docking your pay. Content moderation is the only domain where security through obscurity is considered a best practice. This situation is so dire that organizations like Tracking Exposed have enlisted a human army of volunteers and a robot army of headless browsers to try to unwind the logic behind the arbitrary machine judgments of the algorithm, both to give users the options to tune the recommendations they receive and to help creators avoid the wage theft that comes from being shadow banned. But what if there is no underlying logic? Or more to the point, what if the logic shifts? based on the platform's priorities. If you go down to the midway at your county fair, you'll spot some poor sucker walking around all day with a giant teddy bear that they won by throwing three balls into a peach basket. The peach basket is a rigged game. The carny can use a hidden switch to force the balls to bounce out of the basket. No one wins a giant teddy bear unless the carny wants them to win it. Why did the carny let the sucker win the giant teddy bear? so that he'd carry it around all day, convincing other suckers to put down five bucks for their chance to win one. The carny allocated a giant teddy bear to that poor sucker the way that the platforms allocate surpluses to key performers, as a convincer in a big store con, a way to rope in other suckers who will make content for the platform, anchoring themselves and their audiences to it. Which brings me to TikTok. TikTok is many different things, including a free Adobe Premiere for teenagers that live on their phones. But what made it such a success early on was the power of its recommendation system. From the start, TikTok was really good at recommending things to its users. Eerily good. By making good faith recommendations of the thing it thought its users would like, TikTok built a mass audience, larger than many thought possible, given the death grip of its competitors like YouTube and Instagram. Now that TikTok has the audience, it is consolidating its gains and seeking to lure away the media companies and creators who are still stubbornly attached to YouTube and Insta. 
Last month, Forbes's Emily Baker White broke a fantastic story about how that actually works inside of ByteDance, TikTok's parent company, citing multiple internal sources, revealing the existence of a heating tool that TikTok employees use to push videos from select accounts into millions of viewers' feeds. These videos go into TikTok users' For You feeds, which TikTok misleadingly describes as being populated by videos, quote, ranked by an algorithm that predicts your interest based on your behavior in the app, unquote. In reality, For You is only sometimes composed of videos that TikTok thinks will add value to your experience. The rest of the time, it's full of videos that TikTok has inserted in order to make creators think that TikTok is a great place to reach an audience. Quote, sources told Forbes that TikTok has often used heating to court influencers and brands, enticing them into partnerships by inflating their video's view count. This suggests that heating has potentially benefited some influencers and brands, those with whom TikTok has sought business relationships at the expense of others with whom it has not. In other words, TikTok is handing out giant teddy bears. But TikTok is not in the business of giving away giant teddy bears. TikTok, for all that its origins are in the quasi-capitalist Chinese economy, is just another paperclip-maximizing artificial colony organism that treats human beings as inconvenient gut flora. TikTok is only going to funnel free attention to the people it wants to entrap until they are entrapped. Then it will withdraw that attention and begin to monetize it. Monetize is a terrible word that tacitly admits that there is no such thing as an attention economy. You can't use attention as a medium of exchange. You can't use it as a store of value. You can't use it as a unit of account. Attention is like cryptocurrency, a worthless token that is only valuable to the extent that you can trick or coerce someone into parting with fiat currency in exchange for it. You have to monetize it. That is, you have to exchange the fake money for real money. In the case of cryptos, the main monetization strategy was deception-based. Exchanges and projects handed out a bunch of giant teddy bears, creating an army of true believer Judas goats who convinced their peers to hand the carny their money and try and get some balls in the peach basket themselves. But deception only produces so much liquidity provision. Eventually, you run out of suckers. To get lots of people to try the ball toss, you need coercion, not persuasion. Think of how U.S. companies ended the defined benefits pension that guaranteed you a dignified retirement, replacing it with market-based 401k pensions that forced you to gamble your savings in a rigged casino, making you the sucker at the table ripe for the picking. Early crypto liquidity came from ransomware. The existence of a pool of desperate, panicked companies and individuals whose data had been stolen by criminals created a baseline of crypto liquidity because they could only get their data back by trading real money for fake crypto money. The next phase of crypto coercion was Web3, converting the web into a series of toll booths that you could only pass through by trading real money for fake crypto money. The internet is a must-have, not a nice-to-have, a prerequisite for full participation in employment, education, family life, health, politics, civics, even romance. By holding all of these things to ransom behind crypto toll booths, the hodlers hope to convert their tokens to real money. 
for TikTok, handing out free teddy bears by heeding the videos posted by skeptical performers and media companies is a way to convert them to true believers, getting them to push all their chips into the middle of the table, abandoning their efforts to build audiences on other platforms. It helps that TikTok's format is distinctive, making it hard to repurpose videos for TikTok to circulate on rival platforms. Once those performers and media companies are hooked, the next phase will begin. TikTok will withdraw the heating that sticks their video in front of people who never heard of them and haven't asked to see their videos. TikTok is performing a very delicate dance here. There's only so much in shitification they can visit upon their users' feeds, and TikTok has lots of other performers they want to give giant teddy bears to. TikTok won't just starve performers of the free attention by de-preferencing them in the algorithm, it will actively punish them by failing to deliver their videos to the users who subscribe to them. After all, every time TikTok shows you a video you ask to see, it loses a chance to show you a video it wants you to see, because your attention is a giant teddy bear it can give away to a performer it is wooing. This is just what Twitter has done as part of its march to enshittification. Thanks to its monetization changes, the majority of people who follow you will never see the things you post. I have about 500,000 followers on Twitter, and my threads used to routinely get hundreds of thousands or even millions of reads. Today, it's hundreds, perhaps thousands. I just handed Twitter $8 for Twitter Blue, because the company has strongly implied that it will only show the things I post to the people who ask to see them if I pay ransom money. This is the latest battle in one of the internet's longest simmering wars, the fight over end-to-end. In the beginning, there were bellheads and netheads. The bellheads worked for big telcos, and they believed that all the value of the network rightly belonged to the carrier. If someone invented a new feature, say caller ID, it should only be rolled out in a way that allows the carrier to charge you every month for its use. This is software-as-a-service, Ma Bell style. The netheads, by contrast, believe that value should move to the edges of the network, spread out, pluralized. In theory, CompuServe could have monetized its own version of caller ID by making you pay $2.99 extra to see the from line on email before you open the message, charging you to know who was speaking before you started listening. But they didn't. The netheads wanted to build diverse networks with lots of offers, lots of competition, and easy, low-cost switching between competitors thanks to interoperability. Some wanted this because they believed the net would someday be woven into the world and they didn't want to live in a world of rent-seeking landlords. Others were true believers in market competition as a source of innovation. Some believe both things. Either way, they saw the risk of network capture, the drive to monetization through trickery and coercion, and they wanted to head it off. They conceived of the end-to-end principle, the idea that networks should be designed so that willing speakers' messages would be delivered to willing listeners' endpoints as quickly and reliably as they could be. That is, irrespective of whether a network operator could make money by sending you the data it wanted you to receive, its duty would be to provide you with the data you wanted to see. 
The end-to-end principle is dead at the service level today. Useful idiots on the right were tricked into thinking that the risk of Twitter mismanagement was woke shadow banning, whereby the things that you said wouldn't reach the people who asked to hear them because Twitter's deep state didn't like your opinions. The real risk, of course, is that the things you say won't reach the people who ask to hear them because Twitter can make more money by enshittifying their feeds and charging you ransom for the privilege to be included in them. As I said at the start of this essay, enshittification exerts a nearly irresistible gravity on platform capitalism. It's just too easy to turn the enshittification dial up to 11. Twitter was able to fire the majority of its skilled staff and still crank the dial all the way over, even with a skeleton crew of desperate, demoralized H-1B workers who are shackled to Twitter's sinking ship by the threat of deportation. The temptation to enshittify is magnified by blocks on interoperability. When Twitter bans interoperable clients, nerfs its APIs, and periodically terrorizes its users by suspending them for including their Mastodon handles in their bios, it makes it harder to leave Twitter, and thus increases the amount of enshittification users can be force-fed without risking their departure. Twitter is not going to be a protocol. I'll bet you a testicle not one of mine, that projects like Blue Sky will find no meaningful purchase on the platform because if Blue Sky were implemented and Twitter users could order their feeds for minimal enshittification and leave the service without sacrificing their social networks, it would kill the majority of Twitter's monetization strategies. An enshittification strategy only succeeds if it is pursued in measured amounts. Even the most locked-in user eventually reaches a breaking point and walks away or gets pushed. The villagers of Anatevka in Fiddler on the Roof tolerated the Cossacks' violent raids and pogroms for years until they were finally forced to flee to Krakow, New York, and Chicago. For enshittification-addled companies, that balance is hard to strike. Individual product managers, executives, and activist shareholders all give preference to quick returns at the cost of sustainability and are in a race to see who can eat their seed corn first. Enshittification has only lasted for as long as it has because the internet has devolved into five giant websites, each filled with screenshots of the other four. With the market sewn up by a group of cozy monopolists, better alternatives don't pop up and lure us away, and if they do, monopolists just buy them out and integrate them into their enshittification strategies, like when Mark Zuckerberg noticed a mass exodus of Facebook users who were switching to Instagram, and so he bought Instagram. As Zuck says, it is better to buy than to compete. This is the hidden dynamic behind the rise and fall of Amazon's Smile, the program whereby Amazon gave a small amount of money to charities of your choice when you shop there, but only if you used Amazon's own search tool to locate the products you purchased. This provided an incentive for Amazon customers to use its own increasingly enshittified search, which it could cram full of products from sellers who coughed up payola, as well as its own lookalike products. The alternative was to use Google, whose search tool would send you directly to the product you were looking for, and then charge Amazon a commission for sending you to it. The demise of Amazon Smile coincides with the increasing enshittification of Google Search, the only successful product the company managed to build in-house. All its other successes were bought from other companies, video, docs, clouds, ad, mobile, while its own products are either flops like Google Video, clones, Gmail is a Hotmail clone, or adapted from other companies' products like Chrome. 
Google search was based on principles set out in founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin's landmark 1998 paper, Anatomy of a Large-Scale Hypertextual Web Search Engine, in which they wrote, Advertising-funded search engines will be inherently biased towards the advertisers and away from the needs of consumers. Even with that foundational understanding of enshittification, Google has been unable to resist its siren song. Today's Google results are an increasingly useless morass of self-preferencing links to its own products, ads for products that aren't good enough to float to the top of the list on their own, and parasitic SEO junk piggybacking on the former. Enshittification kills. Google just laid off 12,000 employees, and the company is in a full-blown panic over the rise of AI chatbots and is making a full-court press for an AI-driven search tool. That is, a tool that won't show you what you ask for, but rather what it thinks you should see. Now, it's possible to imagine that such a tool will produce good recommendations, like TikTok's pre-enshittified algorithm did but it's hard to see how Google will be able to design a non-enshittified chatbot front-end to search, given the strong incentives for product managers, executives, and shareholders to enshittify results to the precise threshold at which users are nearly pissed off enough to leave, but not quite. And even if it manages the trick, this almost but not quite unusable equilibrium is fragile. Any exogenous shock, a new competitor like TikTok that penetrates the anti-competitive moats and walls of big tech, a privacy scandal, a worker uprising, can send the equilibrium into wild oscillations. Enshittification truly is how platforms die. That's fine, actually. We don't need eternal rulers of the internet. It's okay for new ideas and new ways of working to emerge. The emphasis of lawmakers and policymakers shouldn't be preserving the crepuscular senescence of dying platforms. Rather, our focus should be on minimizing the cost to users when these firms reach their expiry date. Enshrining rights like end-to-end would mean that no matter how autocannibalistic a zombie platform became, willing speakers and willing listeners could still connect with each other. And policymakers should focus on freedom of exit, the right to leave a sinking platform, while continuing to stay connected to the communities you left behind, enjoying the media and apps you bought, and preserving the data you created. The netheads were right. Technological self-determination is at odds with the natural imperatives of tech businesses. They make more money when they take away our freedom. Our freedom to speak, to leave, to connect. For many years, even TikTok's critics grudgingly admitted that no matter how surveillance and creepy it was, it was really good at guessing what you wanted to see. But TikTok couldn't resist the temptation to show you the things it wants you to see rather than what you want to see. The enshittification has begun and now it is unlikely to stop. It's too late to save TikTok. Now that it has been infected by enshittification, the only thing left is to kill it with fire. All right, that's this week's reading. I actually think I'll be in town next Sunday, so I'll probably do another podcast for you then. Maybe even a little less jet-lagged. Hope you have a great week, and I'll talk to you probably next week. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike US 3.0, or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, 
This song is copyrighted in the U.S. under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.